This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest now on Digging in the Dirt is Paul Greenberg. Paul writes at the intersection of the environment and technology, seeking to help his readers escape screens and find emotional and ecological balance with their planet. He currently hosts the podcast Fish Talk, is also a regular contributor to the New York Times. He is the author of the James Beard award-winning bestseller, Four Fish, and the book, American Catch, and Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. So that's where I want to start, Paul. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Oh, it's great. I mean, we're simpatico, and you're writing about things that bother me and what I want some action on, too. And that's why I keep bringing my audience stories like yours about what we can do individually. And that so the climate diet really rings really well with me. You wrote that this book came about because you wanted to address an essential disconnect that keeps many Americans on the sidelines of climate action. So why this accessible pocket guide to climate-focused lifestyle? Well, you know, I think there's a certain paralysis that happens with a lot of people when particularly sort of knowledgeable people who read everything about climate and read everything about activism and read everything about what works and doesn't work. Um, And the paralysis begins with, on the one hand, um, we are told more and more by the sort of Greta Thunbergs of the world that what we need is massive governmental and societal action total rethinking of society, total, you know, digging things up by the roots and turning them over to create a really whole new approach to how we live on the planet, which I'm totally cool with. Yes, I agree. But at the same time, most people are not ready to go to the barricades and enroll in the career of full-time revolutionary. And we do want to do something individually, each of us on a daily basis, but we're told more and more that you know, the whole idea of a carbon footprint, for example, it is in part, that concept in part stems from fossil fuel companies wanting to kind of shift the burden onto the individual. And then we're told that these individual actions don't really mean that much. But I feel deeply that people need to do something individually, as well as societally. And often the societal flows from the individual action. So what I wanted to do was to offer readers a guide to the most effective things that they can do personally that also have a multiplier effect and can have an effect on society. So that was in a nutshell what I my that what I spoke right now is probably longer in words than is actually in the climate. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's sort of like think globally, act locally. And that's what we highlight here too. And it's it's great. It's a great little book for that way. And because yeah. you, we can't rely on the government to do everything. And if everybody if we get an accumulative effect of a lot of people doing little things, it may have some effect. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's a little bit more than think globally, act locally. It's a bit more like obsess yourself globally and figure out what is the best way to throw those global levers on a personal basis, Hmm. if you see what I'm saying. So it's not just, you know, it's not just looking in this sort of myopic way. It's like, I'm good. I got a Tesla. It's more like, well, okay, what's my personal contribution towards, you know, turning this massive ship away from the disaster towards which it's headed at the moment? Right. And you say in there, I saw that most Americans feel a necessity to take some action in this regard. We're we're actually getting that there is a problem. Yeah. And um, I think the other thing, the other key thing, what you just said is Americans. When you write a book nowadays, you always try to kind of 
pitch a global audience to some degree. But when you look at the numbers and you add up the impact that Americans have on the planet, you realize that it is really here in the United States that climate action and climate responsibility is needed most of all. That's due to the fact that on the one hand, we're, we're a big country. And on the other hand, from an individual point of view, we have a very, very large uh, carbon emissions per person. So I think we're up around 15 uh, tons of carbon emissions per person per year. And if you compare that, uh, even with our friends in Europe, tend to be around half of that. France, because uh, largely because it has uh, so much nuclear power, is down around three tons per person per year. And then you have places like you know, China, for example, which has an overall carbon footprint larger than the United States. But then if you look at it on a per capita basis, they're about half of what the average American puts into the atmosphere every year. So you came up with 50 ways, I and mean, we can't do them all here. So <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you, well, you know, is there other facts like that? You know, because I saw in the book that, you know, uh, every single American emits as much CO2 as two Chinese. Yes, so are there, other, are there other things that we could emphasize here that show people that it is a lot of responsibility of the, the wealthier country, America, because we're put, doing a lot of damage in a, that way? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, one could just go down the list and say, look at India, it's something like 1.6 tons of emissions per person per year. So, you know, generally, the less developed you are, the less lesser your emissions. But, and again, I point to France, it is possible to have a robust, enjoyable economy and still have a pretty low footprint per person per year. And it just does take big societal decisions. Um, you know, for whatever you want to argue about it, France made the decision to go nuclear in a big way 30, 40 years ago, um, more than that, actually. And it has paid off from an emissions point of view because France is a country that has a bit more of a command and control economy than the United States. They're able to kind of herd the cat, so to speak, a lot more easily. I think we have a particularly pernicious social construct in this country where we really have a hard time herding the cats. We have a hard time weighing options and then choosing the option that's best for the most number of people. And part of the reason is because we are a plutocracy. We we are a country where the few wealthy have very vested interests in how the country is run. And, you know, it is true that if we want to dismantle the, the way that this our particular country is abusing the planet, we do have to dismantle the way that that power structure is working and affecting our policy. Wow, that's a big order there, Mr. Greenberg. Well, you know what? Might as well throw it out there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think many of them are going to be reading your book, unfortunately, or you, adhering you know to what, that. You know what? You'd be surprised where, where you find it particularly surprising. It's not maybe not plutocrats themselves, but their spouses are often reading it. And there you go. I, I get invited to a fair number of sort of talks where, you know, the non-corporate one of the couple reads the book and says, honey, you know, I know you have that hedge fund. Maybe we ought to get Paul Greenberg to come and talk. And then That's the, great. And then the hedge fund person is like, all right, all right. If you, will you stop harassing me? Will you let me, you know, golf on Sunday if I get Paul Greenberg to talk about the climate? Bed? So, you know, you weasel That's your funny. way in there in, in whatever way that you can. Yeah, get their grandkids to say, come on, grandpa, you got to stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's also, and it's true, um, you know, you see this in all sorts of families in, in, you know, and whatever, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I'm no stranger to the wealthy, though my bank account seems to be. Um, but <laughs> I, you, and I, I you know, and yeah, and I mean, I know that there is a disconnect. There's a huge generational disconnect 
in all of the large families in this country. And, you know, to the degree that we can motivate those younger people in those plutocratic families to say, you know, no, business as usual ain't going to work. That is, I think, a, a pretty key point of inter intervention going forward. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about the climate diet, 50 yeah, simple yeah. ways to trim your carbon <laughs> footprint. So yeah. I, I think it's, I read in there also, it's 50 reasons for doing something instead of nothing. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the sort of opening and gambit of the book. Um, should we do nothing or should we do something? Right. So I think a lot of us hear the argument that individuals can't really do anything or can't really affect anything. And so the default is to do absolutely nothing, um, which of course is doubly worse. I think you know, we have to always be aware and guard against. There was a book that came out a few years ago called Stuff White People Like. And um, it, was, it was a really great book. Good it title. Just, it, it was just like a list of sort of the completely non-effective way that white people continue to rule the world and um, make social decisions that have absolutely no effect. And so, you know, in this book, white people like things like coffee and they like the wire. And but one thing that always I always think of whenever I think about these issues, what white people really like is awareness. And so if there's a problem way down low and it's no awareness, white people like to see the awareness go way up. And then when the awareness is really high, then they can ignore it. So I think, you know, that's what I tried to work against in this book is that it's not really about being aware. It's about actually doing something. Right. And what do you think? I don't think we can make a lot of progress unless we get the corporations to come aboard. Sure. And we have to hit them from, you know, wherever we can. And, you know, again, if we can get individual, you know, corporations are not, um, despite what tax regulations might, or the Supreme Court might say, corporations are not individuals. They're actually comprised of individuals. So how can we pick off those people one at a time um, and get them to start questioning the, the, the premises behind these corporations to begin with? But that, you know, that perhaps is a subject. Yeah, we could, we could talk all day on this stuff. But let's yeah. go to the 50 reasons for doing something. What, yeah, yeah. Give us a couple of the real important ones. And then, folks, of course, you got to get the book so that you have a little guide right there so you can keep yeah. referring to it. I mean, that's what this is all about is to to build habits, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, I I felt very vindicated in the last couple of years since this book came out in that a lot of the things that were in the book have become front page news, like, for example, getting rid of your gas range. You know, one of the very basic elements towards net zero behavior is is electrifying the home, because if you're electrifying, it means that you can have direct access to solar and wind power and hydropower and, and all these forms of zero emissions um, power out there. If you're still running off of gas, there's just no way that you will ever access those other forms of power. So one of the things that I did actually sort of by accident, I live in a, you know, a 15 story Manhattan building. And Con Ed broke our gas line by accident. And I bought a two-top induction electric stove for about $150. And I frankly, now I don't use my gas stove anymore. I'd like to see if we can actually get the line capped and get it out of there entirely. And in fact, getting rid of your gas line not only uh, is a climate benefit from you know, not actually turning on gas and, and burning fossil fuels, but gas is inherently leaky and is a very potent greenhouse gas when it leaks. So getting rid of gas across the board and getting us as a country to switch away from gas cooking, that's a big game changer and something I think that we all could do at a relatively affordable rate. I mean, if, you know, the big fix is to actually cap your gas line, um, get a, you know, a new electric range that'll do both baking and, and, and cooktop stuff. But, you know, you could also just not use a gas stove and get a two top 
induction electric and pretty much can do whatever you need to do cookwise and have a toaster oven. So that's a pretty easy fix. So convince somebody like my wife that she can live without a gas stove. I mean, well, you know, I have to say I'm a, I'm a foodie, you know, like I, I want a James Beard, as you said in, in your intro. Yep. Um, I really do like to cook. And there it's not just that, you know, the timer, the, the temperature settings are precise and you also can time it so that, you know, when you put something on a gas stove, right, it's pretty hard to time the gas to go off. Um, whereas I can put up any number of stews and so forth and set the timer or program it even to reduce the heat on a given schedule. And it works really well. You know, the one thing that gas I as a cook have found is like, if you really want to sear something um, like a scallop, for example, um, it's a little hard to do. But when I think about the number of times I really want to sear something in the course of it's probably, I can count that number of times on one hand and mm -hmm. frankly, I can live without the searing. So yeah, so that's, that's a really good one. Oh, what about another one? Another one is um, is composting, um, and and that is again something that has a multiplier effect. So, we in this country, I think one out of two forkfuls of food uh, in this country end up in the garbage, and that's of course a huge, tremendous waste. There's a lot of fossil fuels that go into making food in the first place. What I think a lot of people don't realize is that food in landfills basically starts to emit methane, which uh, is a hugely potent greenhouse gas. And because of all the food that we throw out, I think American landfills are the most methane emitting landfills in the world. I think we're talking about like 40 or 50 million cars or something on the road that all that landfill emissions equals. So personally, you know, reducing, moving your food waste into compost is a really good choice. You will definitely cut your own carbon emissions back or your greenhouse gas emissions. But then the multiplier effect comes in when you and your building or your neighborhood start pressing for compost collection in your neighborhoods. And I know this was something that was just getting going before COVID. A lot of municipalities use COVID as an excuse to stop compost collection, but that stuff is starting up again. And I'd really like to see, I mean, I was just in Montreal doing colleges with my son in Montreal, you know, that's default. You have to compost in Montreal. I mean, there's even a, you know, it would be nice. yeah, a would special be... brown bin for it. So. <laughs> There's a lot more going on. I've had several shows on that subject and I'm doing it myself. And give me a couple more, you know, you can just run them off. You know, this one is a little harder to do, but I think it's something that's relevant to the moment. Frankly, living in a city is a pretty good thing to do versus living in the country. Um, and all of these people who are making these COVIDian migrations to the country, they might think that somehow they're escaping the sort of urban carbon hell I just did an op-ed in the New York Times about this new local law 97 that they have passed in the city where they're trying to reduce building emissions. And it's just really striking that even a really carbon belchy, degraded building in New York City, the carbon footprint of the average person is going to be more than half of somebody living in a freestanding home in the suburbs. It's just it's just an economy of scale thing. You know, you have central heating, central cooling. You have just overall fewer resources devoted per individual. So I guess, you know, I'm not sure what your footprint is from a broadcast standpoint, probably a lot of people at Long Island, but for those people who are kind of sort of on the fence of moving from the city to the country, maybe think twice and, and stay in the city. And then the other thing is, okay, so you must be out in the country. Really think about how close you are to public transportation. You know, oftentimes the cheaper properties I know at Long Island might be pretty close to the railway line, but actually from a carbon perspective, being near the railway line is probably the best thing you can do. It's, you know, driving 
huge problem, huge American problem, huge problem that we're not going to solve with electric cars. So figuring out strategies that will get us away from driving is really, really an important thing for, for sounds America. Good. Yeah, sounds good. We're talking to Paul Greenberg. He's a writer. He writes incredible stuff. I like this book a lot called The Climate Diet, 50 Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. But he also has written a lot about fish. I guess, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about fish today. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so fish fish do show up in the climate diet. You know, I can't can't say, you know, I know which side of my clamshell is buttered or whatever. <laughs> but fish, um, but um, fish actually, so there's a whole portion of the climate diet that is actually devoted to diet. Um, and one sort of just caveat to anyone who buys the book, um, the book is not specifically about what you eat. It's more based upon the idea of that Americans are sort of carbon obese and that we need to go on a climate diet. So that's the premise sure. of the book. But but there is a section on food, and fish do play a part of it. So wild fish actually have end up having quite a low carbon footprint um, compared to uh, terrestrial meat, for example. Most wild fish, if you sort of average it out, are about two kilos of emissions per kilo of food put on the table. Whereas you look at beef. You're looking at 23, 24, 25 kilos of emission per kilo of food on the plate. Other things that are pretty good carbon deals from the meat perspective. Well, I was really struck by how good chicken is as a carbon deal. Now, there's all sorts of issues around chicken battery farms, you know, where you mm -hmm. have, sure. and, you know, chickens and shoved really close together. And it's, it's a real disaster from, a, from an animal welfare point of view. Uh, but all of that crowding and force feeding and so forth, sadly, but interestingly, has a carbon impact so that chicken is probably around five kilos of emissions per kilo of meat brought to the table. So that's, you know, large around a fifth of what beef would be. So I would say, you know, if you're going to eat feedlot beef and you're going to eat feedlot chicken, probably better to eat the feedlot chicken. I try to stay mostly vegan at home. You know, I'll eat some meat when I'm out, but um, that's sort of how I try to run my life. I, I actually, I would say, I would modify that with saying we're, we're vegan plus fish at home and the fish I'm pretty selective about which fish that I buy. My wife and I saw you speak at the creativity conference um, recently and out there in Sag Harbor. And yeah. you were talking about you, been, you, you went on a fish diet for a full year. I did. I did. Well, so that was part of, I did a frontline uh, for PBS called the fish on my plate. And during that trial year, I was also writing a book called The Omega Principle about the effect of omega-3 fatty acids upon health and the environment. So I did. I, I I ate only fish. Well, you know, I had some vegetables on the side, but my main protein, my only protein was fish. Three square meals a day and a snack of fish, 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 fish. So that was certainly an experiment. And, you know, my wife saw you actually wanted to know what happened to your lipid level. Yeah, well, I mean, watch the documentary, uh, please. I, <laughs> I just got a royalty check for streaming services. Uh, from, nice. From, from WGH. So What's it called? The it's Omega called, Principle? Uh, no, the, so the, the, the documentary is called The Fish on My Plate. Okay. And the All book right. that sort of I wrote while I was doing that film is called The Omega Principle. So either one, either one, take your pick. Um, but... Um, so the effect that I had actually, so I'm, you know, middle-aged, uh, was having all the usual uh, issues that people of my age often have, higher cholesterol, higher blood pressure. And I went on this high omega-3 fish-only diet for a year, and the effect was absolutely nothing. I had no change in my cholesterol, no change in my in my uh, blood pressure. The one thing that did change is my mercury went through the roof. It's now back down to normal, but at the time, 
was probably five times of what. Wow, moment. that's what my wife was worried about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. And even though I was actually quite judicious about uh, trying to eat, you know, all the usual advice that you hear about seafood, eating low on the food chain, you know, doing all these kinds of responsible things like, you know, eating anchovies and clams and mussels, da, da, da. But in the end, the sheer cumulative effect of all of that seafood just meant higher mercury in the end. Interestingly, I did do another trial a year or two later where I went vegan for a year and tried to see what the effect on those same issues of cholesterol and blood pressure were. And I have to tell you that vegan, that really moved the needle. Um, oh, it did? Okay. Yeah. And I did, I did drop my LDL cholesterol by about a third and blood pressure went down about, you know, five or 10 points on, on either end of that diastolic, uh, systolic spectrum. So that to me was very uh, impressive. And that's one of the reasons that I stick mostly to being a vegan at home. Hmm. Okay. So uh, what do you, what do you feel about people who say we just got to stop eating fish entirely because we're at war with our oceans? What do you think about that? Well, that message, you know, came out of um, a film called Seaspiracy that came out a couple of years ago. And, right, um, it was good. That's where I was going. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, I've seen the film. I actually teach it because I teach in the animal studies program at NYU. And um, I think the film, while it's been cited for some fact checking issues and you know for some double crossing issues with sources, I think the film is is very powerful and compelling and broke through in a way that I certainly never was able to with with my books. So I. I think that the message that people in the first world really don't need to eat fish um, is a is a pretty compelling one. And um, I continue to eat fish in a very, very selective way, in a way that I think is actually a net positive. Um, you know, for example, I fish, I use sort of metaphorically to embrace all of everything from the sea. So farmed mussels, clams, and oysters to me are a net positive for the environment because they do so much water filtration, they provide habitat for wild fish. So supporting that industry to me is a good thing to do. So I will continue to eat those. I continue to eat sockeye salmon from Alaska, mostly because it's mostly coming from an area called Bristol Bay, which for many years was under threat from a huge copper and gold mine development in which the fishermen played a very uh, key role in stopping that mine. So. I felt that eating those fish, I was sort of supporting that um, effort to stop the mine and to keep Alaska as essentially as a wild salmon homeland, which it really is and really should be through, you know, far into the future. I will eat wild anchovies mostly because presently a lot of those anchovies are being ground up and fed to chickens and salmon, farm salmon. Um, and I feel like they could much better use of them would be to eat them directly certainly that's you know much much more sense energetically ergonomically so that's that's another one and then the fourth one is somewhat indefensible i i continue to eat the fish that i catch i don't necessarily say everyone should go out fishing it's just something that i grew up doing and it's something that taught me about ecology and the way that natural systems work and having that in my life is just sort of something i just personally sure. don't want to do without so i mean do i fish for marlin no do I, you know, fish for, I don't know, any, you know, Atlantic salmon, which are, you know, on the endangered species list at this point in this country? No, but I will fish for a corgi, you know, that's readily abundant in Long Island waters, actually great fisheries recovery story, um, black sea bass, another really well-managed. I love that. Yeah. And it's, you know, really recovered well. So, you know, I think good management 
deserves to be rewarded with participation in a fishery. So that's sort of where I stand on on the fish that I catch and eat. So what what do you think about the oceans in general? Are they in danger? I mean, let's talk about, you know, plastics in the oceans and overfishing. Sure. I mean, everything is in danger at the moment. Um, I think the biggest threat to the ocean, though, is 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 climate change. Um, and a lot of ways that the ocean is being threatened are, are kind of invisible. Um, there is a very uh, scary thing that could happen as oceans warm, which is that so the way ecology works in the ocean or the way that food systems work in the ocean or food webs, I should say, is that the sun hits the sea. It stimulates the production of phytoplankton, which are photosynthetic plankton algae. And then once the phytoplankton bloom, zooplankton will follow them and crop down and will eat the phytoplankton. And then the zooplankton end up being fodder for small fish, usually juvenile fish, and then so on and so forth up the line. Well, if the waters warm in such a way that zooplankton bloom at the same time as phytoplankton blooming, which phytoplankton are, are light triggered, whereas zooplankton are, tend to be temperature triggered, you could have a situation where the zooplankton crop down the phytoplankton too quickly, they crash before the little fish can come along to eat them. So you could potentially sort of pull the rug out from underneath the marine ecosystem. So that's pretty scary. Um, that's pretty scary. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's issues like, you know, acidification of the oceans, which is, you know, directly related to the, we're reaching the ocean's maximum in, ability, in its ability to absorb carbon dioxide. So, you know, the, the, the dissolving of shell-based animals in the ocean, again, undermines the food web. There are a lot of calciferous zooplankton out there. And so if we were to lose those, that would be a, another, you know, break in the chain of marine food webs and, and so on online. So, so those sort of really systemic essential things. That's why, you know, the first two books that I wrote about the ocean were Four Fish and American Catch, which really had to do with like overfishing and fisheries regulation and the economy of fishing. Um, the third book, Omega Principle, is really about these larger systems um, that are climate related. And those to me are, they make overfishing, you know, as Carl Safina said in my frontline doc, it makes, them, makes overfishing seem kind of quaint. Hmm. Yeah, it's a system of systems, and we're worried about if one system collapses, what does that do to the next one up and the next yeah. one up? And 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 that, frankly, is one another reason why I do maintain the idea that having a food relationship with the ocean is important, because if we aren't eating from the sea, then this sort of collapse of those systems becomes invisible to a certain degree. So participating through the plate is a way, I think, of kind of keeping our eye on what's going on in the ocean. Mm. We're talking to Paul Greenberg, a prolific writer. Has lots of good books out there for fish, American Catch, Climate Diet, and goes on, even the Omega Principle. There's quite a few of them. And you can go to paulgreenberg.org to find a lot of what he writes. And I really appreciate you coming aboard here today. What is uh, your view about freshwater? Is it better than it used to be? I remember you used to always talk about PCBs in the Hudson. Well, it's very... It's very uh, because it, freshwater bodies by by nature are isolated and not entirely interconnected. I mean, everything's interconnected, but they're they're a kind of case by case basis. PCBs are going to be a long term problem in the Hudson. I mean, they're in the process of trying to extract those PCBs from the General Electric spill uh, mid midway up the river, and that's an ongoing process. I'm not aware of 
I haven't seen the most recent data on PCBs in, say, striped bass. I believe there are still health advisories for children and women of childbearing age. So it's certainly, you know, PCBs are one of those things. Once they're in this in the environment, they are very slow to leave the environment. So mm. we'll probably be dealing with that legacy for a long time. The thing that I find the most confounding, so my family has a long history with the Adirondacks. Um, my grandfather was a timpanist for the New York Philharmonic, and they used to do a retreat up in the Adirondacks for years. And so they eventually retired up there. And so I was going fishing for brook trout and, you know, smallmouth bass up there, pike and so forth. And always the idea that the Adirondacks were this pristine, beautiful place, and they needn't worry about all those health advisories that you have to worry about when you're fishing in the ocean. But it turns out that, you know, the Adirondacks are in the lee of all of the smokestack emissions coming from the Midwest. And I think both of us are old enough to remember the stories of acid rain, sulfur dioxide coming out of smokestacks and forming acidic rain, basically, it killed a lot of lakes. That problem was somewhat dealt with by putting in sulfur scrubbers in the smokestacks. And so it's not as much of an issue as it was. But that said, methylmercury, which comes from burning of coal, is still a problem. And we you do have these crazy situations where you can be fishing, you know, in what seems to be an entirely pristine Adirondack Lake. And yet there's a mercury advisory around that lake because of the methylmercury that's drifting in from the from those Midwest smokestacks. So it's current events now because now there's a company called, I don't know if you saw this in the news, Holtec International. They're the company in charge of decommissioning the Indian Point nuclear power plant. They want to dump one million gallons of toxic wastewater into the Hudson. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have I have been following that story. I mean, I'm actually on the advisory board of Riverkeeper, and this is something that comes up a lot from their emails. Oh, yeah, they're vociferously against this. Yeah, and as am I, um, you know, just because they feel like, you know, they're being shut down and they have to deal with this somehow doesn't mean that the Hudson has to be the recipient of this extremely dubious project. So, I mean, I know I speak out in favor of, well, I speak out in favor of France's experiment in nuclear power, and and I have to say, having been very anti-nuclear power as a as a teenager and twenty-something, I start to see the argument for it as long as it's done safely. But to me, dumping millions of gallons of radioactive, potentially radioactive water into the Hudson River is not a great idea. I don't. I actually have to confess that I don't. I haven't looked deeply at the science um, and and understood you know the the, the exact amount of radioactivity in the water that they want to I wonder you know that's serious stuff you know and I mean they say it's the best option but I think it's the cheapest option <laughs> it's usually the cheapest option you know whenever um you know I teach a course at NYU called the people versus the sea and it's I tell people it's either a journalism course disguised as disguised as a marine science course or a marine science course dis disguised as a journalism course but there's a lot of journalism that goes into it and I I show you know the sort of spectrum of of what we're trying to do as writers. On one hand, you have science. On the other hand, you have stories. And there's a sort of, you know, arc trying to go from one to the other. But that sitting atop all of it is money. And most of the time, if you are doing an environmental story, if you don't follow the money, then you're really not getting a sense of what's really happening. You know, people will make all sorts of arguments for, you know, this or that cause. But underlying it oftentimes is the soft whisper of capitalism. We're talking to Paul Greenberg. You can go to paulgreenberg.org to find a lot of what he writes. And I would be remiss also if I didn't talk to you about Ground Zero Garden. What's, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I moved down to Ground Zero in Manhattan, uh, right near the World Trade Center 
in 2005, um, moved in with my now partner um, and um, it had a very large terrace in front of it. And nobody ever did anything with the terrace. It just sort of sat there. And I mean, it's not fair. My my neighbor actually put, hung up a lot of flowers every year, and but then they would die and that would be that. So I've always been kind of interested and obsessed with feeding myself without having to go to a supermarket. So starting in around, I don't know, 2007, 2008, I started doing some trials of things that might be able to be grown out there. And um, my neighbor was convinced that tomatoes, for example, could never be grown. But then I started messing, because we only get about four hours of direct sun on the terrace. So, But then I started messing around with covering old screen doors uh, with aluminum foil and other reflective materials that I would pick up off the street. I started to assemble this garden. And now uh, I can say that we are salad self-sufficient about eight months out of the year. Um, and also we produce a single bottle of wine on every good rain year. And uh, the, the, the wine is called Chateau Nul uh, <laughs> in honor of the ground zero, but also apparently in French, if you want to say somebody's a total loser, you say they're a nul, a zero. <laughs> so, so yeah, so we produce Chateau Nul out here. And, uh, and yeah, now I'm actually using it a little bit as a teaching tool um, through the Safina Center. I have um, a farmer actually working with me um, named Eliza Milio. Um, and she is helping me garden and um, we're going to, I would like to eventually turn it into a lab that we can do different experiments with. One of the things we're trialing this year is I have three identical big planters that I'm trialing uh, Montauk actually grown uh, seaweed fertilizer. So it's, it's seaweed versus miracle grow out there on the terrace this year. Um, and we're sort of tracking the growth of what, what goes on there. Other experiments I'm doing, I have a large closet um, that is now a mushroom farm. So we're trying to see if we could get mushrooms going. And the main reason for the mushroom farm is that it turns out for oyster mushrooms, a really good medium on which to grow mushroom is cardboard boxes. And my partner's obsession with Amazon and the amount of boxes that she generates, mm, I, can, I, know. I want to turn it into food. And that, you know, to me, good will, idea. that will be the ultimate closing of the circle. And then maybe we'll stop having the argument about Amazon. I would say that you what you need, if you don't have it, is the worm farm. I I harvest worm poop all the time for my garden. It's very easy. It doesn't smell if you do it right. And you get a lot of benefit from it. You know, in, in fact, actually, several years back, I went to the bait shop up in the Adirondacks and got three tubs of night crawlers and dumped them into my compost on my terrace. And so they are alive and well. Beautiful. And you're, they, you're ahead they, of me. They even provide bait. <laughs> <laughs> and that's important to a fisherman like yourself. That, that is very important. Yes. Yeah. So one last question. Yeah. Uh, from from the work you do, your, your writings, you have a pretty intimate relationship with the issues and the complexity of the issues on our planet. So uh, what do you want to say to people listening that you feel is the most important thing to keep in mind about the warming of the planet that we are facing and how we could perceive our individual role in it? I mean, in spite of everything, I would say it's not really worth it to despair. First of all, we only are given, you know, four, three score and seven or 10 or whatever on this planet to be ourselves. So spending that time in despair doesn't help yourself and doesn't help the planet particularly. I think that you need to sync up your desires and your hopes with constructive behavior. And I, and I do think that, you know, I think back to like the sort of Buddhist tenet of, of right living and right action. And I think that if we were really to examine our lives, we would find that if we were acting rightly in a Buddhist tradition, 
that we would be better as a planet, but actually that we would be more content. I, I hesitate to use the word happy because it's not really a Buddhist word, but I think we would be more in balance. And um, I think if we take that as the carrot rather than some sort of shame stick, then I think we'll get ourselves and the planet to a better place. Sounds good. Paul Greenberg, thanks so much for coming aboard. Once again, folks, lots of good stuff to read. You can go to paulgreenberg.org to find a lot of what he writes. And if you'd like to check out some more of what he's doing, um, I think it's well worth it. Thanks for coming, Paul. My pleasure, Kevin. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 